population, uh, has written on uh, issues uh, also such as the causes of populism, and notably the author of White Shift, an uh, excellent book uh, which examines the impact of demographic change uh, on developed countries, uh, but also um, on voting behaviour as well. I'm going to start by just laying out a few of the basic um, building blocks of where we are. In 2022, net legal migration hit 606,000, the highest figure on record, and around double the pre-Brexit rate. People voted for Brexit in 2016 on a platform of taking back control of many policy areas. Immigration was doubtless one of them, and what that exactly means I'm sure we will get into. Um, with immigration cited by Leave voters uh, as the second most popular reason after democratic control and sovereignty. Then in the 2019 Conservative Manifesto, there was a commitment that overall numbers uh, would fall. Um, Two-thirds of adults say that uh, immigration is um, too high, and um, polling commissioned by Onward indicates that there may well be an immigration sceptic majority in as many as 75% of parliamentary constituencies. And according to YouGov, immigration is currently the third biggest issue for voters, behind the economy and health, but above the environment, which is very interesting. Nevertheless, at the same time, business leaders have been calling for more workers. There's been much uh, reporting of uh, a labour shortage in our, uh, in our newspapers. And even a former chancellor has recently recommended that immigration should be increased as a way of controlling um, inflation. And there's clearly demand for workers um, in certain particular sectors, such as, such as care workers. So clearly this is a very live, a very important issue. It will be salient at the next election. But I think it's very clear that it will be an ongoing question in our politics beyond whatever happens in 2024. And that is why we are interested in this topic today. Um, I should just clarify that our discussion today is going to be focused on the legal migration regime rather than on illegality, questions around asylum, small votes, etc. Though, of course, there will be some areas of overlap. Um, I'm going to start by going um, going to Damien. So net migration has been positive every year since... 1994, um, with between 200,000 and 300,000 thereabouts per annum from 2003 onwards. Um, clearly, there is, some kind of, uh, there is some kind of gap, a very large gap, between what public policy is currently delivering and what the electorate say they want. But obviously, there are wider prevailing economic and, and public policy considerations as well. Now, you obviously had um, experience right at the coalface when you were inside Whitehall. Um, would you talk us through your perception of where kind of the immigration discussion is at the moment? What are, uh, what are, what are the ups, what are the downs, and what are the challenges with getting to grips with this question from, uh, from a public policy perspective? Sure. Thank you very much. And, and thanks to Onward for, I mean, not just this, but, but the whole discussion about the future of conservatism, which is uh, extremely relevant. And I should say I feel slightly awed that all the academics whose work I used to read before concluding as immigration minister that my job was impossible uh, (laughs) on the panel with me. Um, I I, I want to start on an unexpected literary note um, by quoting Alexander Pope, who famously said, uh, for forms of government, let fools contest whatever is best administered is best. And quite a lot uh, of the secret to immigration policy is about dull administration and making it work, because it doesn't matter what principles you apply and, and whether you come up with marvellous evidence-based policy, if the system doesn't work, then 
nothing will go right and governments will look incompetent and people will be um, angry in the way that they do get up and down. But immigration goes up and down uh, that, that salience list you just quoted and, and it's quite high at the moment because clearly uh, the government is not uh, achieving uh, what it wants to do. And I think yeah, this is directly, as I say, relevant to today's debates. You, you, you rightly say let's concentrate on uh, illegal on, on legal immigration and what the government is trying to do rather than the, the asylum issue. But the asylum issue is a good illustration of that very uh, salient point because if you speeded up asylum processing then you would have uh, fewer problems and I think that should be the ministerial priority more frankly than passing new legislation. Uh, the, the, the immigration system was completely out of control between sort of, 2003 and 2010 and uh, as shadow immigration minister which I was for five years I used to taunt the government constantly with if passing laws they passed an immigration law every year if passing laws actually solved the immigration crisis then we would have the best immigration system in the world um, and I'm afraid the government has got slightly back into this habit of passing a new immigration bill every year expecting that somehow this will solve the problem and it doesn't uh, and, and I'm afraid that's, that's an eternal truth. And the other eternal truth uh, is if you've got people coming across the channel illegally, the only way to solve it is to cooperate with the French. Um, they used to come across in the backs of lorries, um, and they don't anymore. The reason they're coming on small boats, which is more dangerous even than the backs of lorries, um, is that we stop them uh, by shelling money out at the French, so they put X-ray machines uh, in Calais, basically, and that, that minimised that kind of pro uh, process. Um, but, as you say, 600,000 is the current legal uh, migration level, net migration level, uh, which is way too high. Uh, you know, when, when I left the, the immigration bit of the, the Home Office, it was 163,000 and falling. And, 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 and we were constantly jeered at, well, you haven't hit your 100,000 target. I think any, any immigration minister, for, for as far ahead as the eye could see, would bite your arm off a net migration of 163,000. Um, and the, I mean, there are various points I should make as an introductory thing. You can't redefine your way out of it. Um, a lot of people say, well, let's just take students out, because students are only here for a bit. Um, apart from the fact, there is an international definition of migration, which is somebody who moves to another country uh, for more than a year. I think if any government said, we've cut immigration by 200,000 by saying that students don't count, they would be laughed out of court. So that, that would be seen to be fiddling. Um, and, and I think the... Uh, and the other half of that is that if you, you talk rightly about the job shortages, it seems to me that one of the areas that has been hugely successful over decades is the seasonal agriculture worker scheme, uh, and partly because it brings people over for less than a year, so it doesn't actually count in immigration statistics. And a, a lot of the ways uh, we could address what are genuine labour shortage in industries like hospitality, uh, certainly in, in that sort of industry where you quite get a lot of uh, youngish workers who, who would quite like a year in this country um, is, is to have one-year visas uh, for people for those kind of shortage occupation uh, industries. Um, but, but the main thing, and, and I suspect um, Alan will, will expatiate on this better than me, um, is that we need to have fewer shortage occupations. So we're not asking committees to define shortage occupations on which we're allowed to bring in hundreds of thousands of workers from overseas because these are jobs that British people won't do. 
Um, people won't do jobs if they're underpaid and undervalued. If you pay people more in things like care and value them better and give them a career structure, then funnily enough, I think more Brits would want to work in those sorts of industries. So that's actually the other side of the coin, that you can be as tough as you like in your rhetoric, but actually, unless you've got the right people to fill the right jobs, then you're going to have uh, an immigration problem. So uh, as one final point I'll make uh, about politics and targets, uh, which is, as I say, the, the 100,000 target that we, uh, we famously had, which we never met, um, was actually, uh, contrary to popular rumour, uh, a political success. Uh, if you look at the 2015 election, then I think the Conservative Party had a 36-point lead on immigration over the Labour Party. And we're now behind, I observe, as a party... Uh, on immigration. And that's because even though we hadn't hit the 100,000 target, we were clearly making strenuous efforts which were reasonably successful at getting down towards that level. I don't think anyone sensible thinks that you are going to change immigration numbers radically overnight. But if you are seen to be doing practical things combined with realistic <coughs> speeches, then that's a lot better than having tougher and tougher rhetoric and less and less effect in practice. So I would dial down the rhetoric and dial up the effectiveness of the policy. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm glad you raised the issue of practical policy levers, because I want to circulate back to that a little bit later in the discussion. But um, just on the, on the post-Brexit migration regime, I'm going to come over to you, Madeline. Um, um, from your work, obviously you've got great expertise in this area, directing the Migration Observatory at, um, at Oxford... Um, could you, for us, just paint a picture of how you see um, the post-Brexit migration system, the points-based system, how is it working? Um, from your perspective, is it working? Are there things that aren't working? And as a result of it, what are the key trends in both EU migration, uh, non-EU migration, skilled and unskilled? Why have we got this very high number and how is that composed? Sure. So, yeah, I mean, whether it's working, I think, depends on what you expected it to do, and not everyone had the same, uh, same vision of that. Um, the sort of broad um, picture in terms of what's happened over the last few years, obviously, when free movement ended, we used to have a, this very liberal regime for EU citizens, um, and that was brought to an end, and now everyone is in the same... Non-EU and EU citizens are all in the same uh, regime, which is much more restrictive than what EU citizens uh, faced, but more liberal than what non-EU citizens faced. Um, for most of the, the 2010s. Um, now, there are um, uh, many different types of migration that are contributing at the moment to the overall numbers. Um, one of the um, big reasons that we saw really high numbers in um, 2022 by historical standards um, is this, these unusual um, uh, factors, that unusually high numbers of people from Ukraine and also people leaving Hong Kong under the, uh, the Hong Kong BNO um, status holder route. Um, so that contributed to the increase, but it's definitely not the only thing. We also then saw an increase in the number of skilled workers coming um, and that's primarily in the health and care sector, which I suspect we'll be talking about more because that's been a really important driver of, um, of skilled migration. Um, and then the third one is an increase in international students. Um, partly, I think there's, there's an interesting debate about how much that's um, a result of policy. Um, there were, the, the regime for international students is a bit more liberal um, before with the reintroduction of post-study work, but the numbers are much higher than they were um, when we had a strategy quite similar regime about um, 10 or 15 years ago. So, um, so you've got this odd combination of factors that led to um, higher levels of, of immigration, um, not all because of the post-Brexit 
immigration regime, although there were some liberalizations that are part of that, like the um, extension of um, uh, the skilled work visas to, to, to care workers. In terms of the net number, I think it is reasonable to assume that even if policy didn't change at all, the numbers will come down um, over the next few years, partly because we don't have many, as many people coming in from Ukraine as we did in the past. Um, uh, so the, the, the weekly figures of Ukrainians are a small fraction of what they were um, in, in early 2022. And um, also because it's, we expect, at least if we see you know, if historical data or anything to go by, that there will be an increase in emigration of international students. Um, in the past, um, the large majority have eventually returned home, um, but not for, typically for one to three years. So the expectation then is that um, between now and 2025, the emigration, particularly of international students, will pick up with slightly lower immigration, even without a change in policy. You would expect to see the numbers come down, um, although exactly where they come down to is um, yeah, difficult to predict. Mm. And on that question of um, skills, one of the arguments that one does here uh, for the necessity of high economic migration is that there's a skills deficit or there are certain skills which do need mm. to be acquired overseas or, or, or imported. Um, given what's actually playing out at the moment, and given the rules as defined within the skilled work visa, do you think that particular mechanism is, is delivering what we need from it? Is it, really, is, is it really delivering skilled workers into the economy, or are there problems with it? I think, um, I mean, most of the, so the way that the immigration system defines skill is uh, primarily based on the, the length of training that is required. Um, and so, uh, and most of the jobs that uh, people are coming into would be considered skilled. You know, they would require um, uh, often a university degree, um, but uh, sometimes uh, you know, training short of a, of a university degree. Um, there are the main exemption, uh, and this actually now concerns a relatively large number of people, is care workers, which um, under any classification is not going to um, be qualified as, as a skilled, uh, under any sort of statistical classification, won't count as a skilled job in the sense that it doesn't, you only require a few days of training um, in order to, to be able to do that work. Um, I, th I think that in the big story here is the health and care sector. Um, I think you know demand. There has been a, a, something of an increase in demand in the private um, in private sector roles, um, but not that big. The reason that there have been um, that there's been an increase in demand for skilled work visa is people coming in as care workers, doctors, and nurses. And part of, and I think this gets us into a debate. It, it's interesting because back in the um, uh, in February 2020, I think when the government put out. Um, the policy statement on the post-Brexit immigration system, there was a relatively stark uh, statement that, well, employers are going to have to adjust. Um, and what I think has been interesting is that where there's been most reluctance to adjust has actually been in the bits of the labour market that the government controls. Um, so in, in health and, and care, where in the case of the NHS, the government control, effectively controls uh, you know, training and the paying conditions in the NHS. And then in care, um, the, uh, effectively the funding model is really important for determining the pay rates of, of workers. Um, and I think you know, there are strategies you could envisage that would, um, that at least that might have an impact on reducing demand for, for overseas workers, but they would be expensive and they would, it would require um, doing things like really addressing the fundamental model for social care, which is something that for other uh, reasons has been politically very, very difficult. So I don't think it's inevitable that you have to have these levels of migration, but I think if you don't, there are, you have to think about the, um, the consequences and the trade-off and which other areas of policy um, need to be engaged. Sure. Well, before we get into the question of methods for reduction, if indeed reduction is what we want to do, um, I just want to 
come over to you, Alan, on this question of a skill shortage or a labour shortage, because um, there's a lot of discussion about this. It often gets spoken about as though it's just a kind of an assumed fact, but um, you uh, were interviewed in the FT quite recently talking about this, this question of whether there, in fact, is a labour shortage, or is it just, in fact, that there are certain jobs being advertised by employers which British workers don't want to do, the, the salary and the conditions being offered, and it's not really right to talk about a labour shortage, yet many business leaders are using those terms. Could you just talk a bit about your, your take on that? Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I, 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 as a sort of an economist, would say, well, when we say there's a shortage of labour, we're sort of saying that the, the demand for labour is running ahead of the, the supply of labour. So I think it's not surprising that people then think, well, a solution to that is let's increase the supply of labour through immigration to, to close that gap. But I think there are... Um, you need to think about it a little bit more uh, than that. So um, now you might thought, think about the labour market as a whole, there's a sort of generalised shortage, that the labour market is, is pretty tight. Um, and in that case, I think it's sort of, um, you know, my view is that um, immigration is not a solution to a generalised shortage. And the problem is that, yes, more immigration of workers lead, increases the supply of labour, but as those immigrant workers um, work and earn money and spend money, they're simultaneously increasing the demand for labour as well, and that's more or less uh, imbalanced. But there is another side to that coin, which is that in a recession, it's equally not the case that lower immigration is the solution to, to unemployment. So a recession is going to be the demand running ahead of the supply. And I think one of the things you see is people tend to come from their view on immigration first, for or against, and then adopt inconsistent positions on what we should do to immigration in, in booms and recessions. So I think um, my view is that um, it's neither a solution to general, a tight labour market or a solution to un unemployment. But then we come, I think, to the sort of you know, sp shortages in specific sectors. And I think then... It's really important to say, uh, try and think about the question, well, why is there a shortage? And very crudely, there are, two, there, there are two possible reasons. Firstly, there aren't enough people in the UK who are able to do this job. And secondly, there aren't enough people who want to do the job. And I think a lot of the discussion we have tends to emphasise the former, but actually it's the latter much more of the time. And I think we overestimate the former, because, partly because our immigration system is built around skills. So in order to get access to the system, employers are always going to be talking up the skills. And secondly, when employers say, um, well, we've got shortages, they're not going to say because our pay and conditions are really <laughs> terrible. That is just not really going to be what happens. Um, so a lot of this is really, those sort of shortages are about uh, really poor paying conditions. That's what they're about. So they cannot compete, these sectors cannot compete in the open labour market. And really what they're asking for is sort of ring fence supplies of labour, um, um, which, you know, I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, but just be very clear about what you're doing. If you do that, I think you'll be detaching that part of the labour market forever because there's sort of no way, no way back. Um, you'll be institutionalising it. Um, and there may be arguments for it. You're probably going to get what they produce sort of cheaper than you otherwise would because the pay and conditions are going to be permanently worse. But at the same time, you're going to have... Um, it probably isn't going to be very good for people who are working in, in, in those sectors. So I think a lot of it, the, the, what are called skill shortages, are really about um, poor pay and conditions.
Do you think there's been a wage compression effect as a result of migration in certain sectors? Because that's something that's often disputed. I, I think no one has really, to my mind, managed to come up with any very compelling evidence of any large effect of immigration on wages, good or, you know, good or bad. Um, I think at the bottom end of the labour market, that's um, partly because uh, we've had the minimum wage, we've raised the minimum wage higher than average earnings. And so I think a lot of the sectors are, that are sort of reporting shortages are ones which actually, they're not very nice jobs. And so they have to pay above the minimum wage. And so they actually end up paying the minimum wage. So if you're kind of working, you know, in a pub or something, it may be a minimum wage work. That's a lot more fun than working on the night shift in an abattoir, even though that's a, you know, that's a, can be a minimum wage job as, as well. So I think it's those sectors which really... The minimum wage has been really important in sort of meaning there hasn't been any bad effect on wages, but I think some sectors which are sort of not less than appealing jobs have found it easier to sort of, you know, continue to pay minimum wages. There have been some specific sectors where there have been some significantly above inflation pay rises, like HGV drivers and that, that sort of thing. I mean, some of the reporting increases of 20%, 30% in, in, in pay. Yeah. Um, is, is that a post-Brexit thing? Is that due to changes in migration patterns? And what might be the cause of that? I, I think in HGV drivers, yeah, I think we've got some reasonably good, I feel reasonably good evidence that salaries did go up but I think that emphasises you know, the tra- you know that's the, the trade-off that has helped to alleviate shortages, there are many fewer reports around this, um, other things have helped as well, they've you know, trained more people and, and things like that so it's not just that um, and obviously that's great if you're, if, if, if you're a driver but at the same time it's made driving and the costs of moving stuff around kind of more expensive. That probably feeds into the costs of other things. Those are the trade-offs that you've got to. But uh, to, to sort of try and decide where you want to be, as Madeline said, it depends what you are trying to, to achieve. But I think in sectors like hospitality the evidence that pay has gone up um, isn't really very strong at all. I mean I think our earnings data is not very good. <coughs> Um, but, you know, the evidence suggests it's actually in the highest-paying sectors where the wage inflation is highest, not in these, in these lower-paying sectors. There's a final one from me uh, on this topic before we go over to Eric. I'm going to ask a cheeky one. If you are a lower-paid, lower-skilled domestic British worker, do you think the large-scale um, economic migration we've had since, say, 2003 has been net positive or net negative for you on balance? On balance, I think it was pretty much a wash. But, I mean, I think, you know, the arguments that there were big costs, I don't kind of agree with that. But the other side of it, that there were huge big benefits as well, I don't think there's very much evidence for that. And, of course, politically that's difficult. I mean, you know, you can't really campaign on, we, you know, we should have an open immigration regime because it makes no difference to you. That's really <laughs> hardly going to be a sort of manifest, make it into the, anybody's manifesto, I I suspect. So that's sort of my view. I think the issues that people have is that they somehow felt their concerns weren't being addressed and somehow the bandwidth of government and so on is, is going on other places and other people. And it was that sense of neglect that was the root of this more than any effect on objective sort of material economic. So GDP as a whole addition, because there's more people obviously, but GDP per capita, much for muchness would be your view. Yeah, I don't think immigration has had very much effect on GDP per capita because immigrants actually aren't 
a massive, massive share of the total labour force, and on average, they're not very, very different from, from you know, the Brits, and so they just don't really make that much difference to GDP per capita. Great. Um, let's go over to um, Eric. So I want to make sure we've got enough time to talk about um, practical policy steps and also for audience questions. So, um, Eric, moving on perhaps a little bit from the economic side of this, um, could you, obviously you've done a lot of, um, uh, of work on kind of the, the politics of this and um, you've done a lot of um, uh, opinion polling on this subject and many others as well. Um, how do you see this issue politically, given that we are you know, now months effectively away from a general election? This is one of the few areas in which the Tories have been leading but perhaps no longer or where that, 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 that's falling away. It seems as though this is something of profound importance to many, many voters, but perhaps certain kinds of voters more than others. And, you know, you've spoken about age on this sort of thing. Talk us through the politics of this. Yeah, I, I guess the first thing to realize about attitudes to immigration is it's really a, not the economy stupid. It's really about psychology, culture. Um, if you take two questions, for example, is it more important for a child to be well-mannered or considerate? You know, the difference in... It sounds like the same question. The difference in your view on that is going to explain a significant chunk of your view on immigration. Even more so, things in Britain were better in the past. If you strongly agree with that, almost 8 out of 10 would agree with the state of, of people who say things were better in the past. Almost 8 out of 10 would say immigration should be reduced a lot. People who strongly disagree with that, it's only about 1, in, one out of 10. So that's giving you a sense of what's underlying immigration attitudes. But then what we have is the numbers. Numbers tend to drive salience, not a one-to-one -one relationship, but there's a strong relationship there. So what happens is if numbers go up, uh, you're an a, a, a voter who says immigration should be reduced, but instead of immigration being your number five issue or number four issue, it's your number one or two issue. And that's what was behind Brexit. It was what, what was behind uh, the European populist right. So what we're in a situation now is where the numbers are going up again and salience is rising again. So if you just take, say, conservative voters or leave voters, the, the importance, top three importance of immigration to them is, is almost three times where it was at the, high, at the pit of the pandemic. So the pandemic really drops the salience of immigration because people are worried about the economy and about health. Now that those things are starting to fade, immigration is coming back and, of course, the numbers are high. Uh, what that then means is we've got rising salience uh, of immigration, and, and rising salience of immigration is the number one predictor also of support for populist right parties. So we have now got demand conditions for the populist right to reemerge as it did prior to the Brexit vote. So salience of immigration amongst Tory voters prior to the Brexit vote was sort of about 70% in, in the top three. It's now about 60%. So it's close to where it was prior to the Brexit vote. Um, the question now is how the political system responds. I think that what happened is we, we forget that Johnson trust the sort of what I will call Singapore on Thames liberal Brexiteers took over the movement when the Tories came into office in 2019, even though 40% of Brexit voters, immigration is their number one issue. For Tory MPs, very few of them, immigration is their number one issue. And that disconnect is what we're seeing playing out now. The Tory MPs, the party actually liberalized immigration, not just because there were pressures in cabinet, but because most of them are economic liberals first, and if they are culturally conservative, it's second. And so they prioritized the economic liberalism, and that dovetailed well with the pressures they were getting from business to liberalize. And so you saw Johnson... 
you know, liberalizing the minimum wage thresholds, the requirement to advertise jobs to British workers first. You saw Trust trying to do trade deals with India to have free movement, etc. These are just signals of how liberal, uh, even under the Brexiteer elite, how liberal they were compared to their voting base. So that opens up space for populism, and I, I would suspect we're going to see. Uh, well, the demand conditions are there. The question is, who is it going to be? How is it going to express itself? So what, is, what, what do you think are the causes of people having a, uh, a critical uh, or, or negative uh, response towards immigration? Obviously, one of those is, at the very least, a perception of competition for jobs, effects on wages. Obviously, it's, there's complexities with the economics of that. So that's one, but what are the other factors out there? Why do people, why is it such a big issue for so many voters? Yeah, I don't think actually economics is central. So it's more, the, it's partly reflecting what Alan said. Your view on immigration kind of comes first for psychological, cultural, ideological reasons, and then you see problems through that lens. So if you take an issue like public, pressure on public services is a problem, if you ask Brexit voters, you just put it like that about, They'll give it about a 50 out of 100 as a problem. Uh, at least they did in a survey I, I ran a number of years ago. If you say immigration putting pressure on public services, it jumps up to like 70, 75. So it actually can't be the case that the part of the problem of public services pressure due to immigration is larger than the problem itself. So I think that's kind of an indication of where what's driving it is fundamentally ideological, <coughs> psychological. But then the key thing is the numbers, because that then increases the salience, partly mediated by the media. Um, and, and so I guess I see this fundamentally as a cultural issue. And so, so hence, I don't see this, you know, yes, it is an economic issue in that you have to sort of address the, the drivers of economic needs for immigration. But fundamentally, this is a sort of realignment issue in, in which the politics of Western countries is shifting away from necessarily that sort of economic left-right redistribution versus market divide to a more open-closed, if you like, divide over cultural attitudes. And just to give you an example of, you know, if you take the view that immigration should be increased, you know, in the United States, for example, that view took off from 2016. Um, to the point where something like 60 or 65 percent of white liberal Americans said immigration should be increased in this. Never ever has that view been ex expressed in the past. And I think that just sort of tells you this is seen as a moral issue by uh, particularly left-wing voters. And so, and I think for those on the conservative side, it is very, t very much tied up with their view things in Britain were better in the past. We don't want things to change so fast ethno-culturally, culturally. That, I think, is what ultimately underlies this. Do you think that historically Labour voting communities, which maybe may have moved over to the Tories in 2017, 2019, have got a more sceptical view? Is there evidence of that? Yeah, there is in the sense that there's a correlation, let's say, between thinking things were better in the past, uh, say, not having university education and living in those communities. I don't want to overstate, though, the kind of... Uh, somewhere anywhere thesis in the sense that this psychological divide actually runs through university educated people, working class, so you've got liberal working class people, you've got conservative university educated people, uh, the, 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 but the education divide has become more important in the politics of all Western nations and, and particularly on the immigration issue. So these cult the cultural axis, the cleavages that around culture have risen in salience, and the economic cleavages have declined. The class redistribution cleavage has declined in salience amongst the voters. What I think we can say, however, amongst political elites, particularly in the conservative party, the economic cleavage is very much more important for conservative MPs than for their voters. And I think that's one of the reasons you're seeing this sort of 
dissonance, really, that's leading to an opening for people like Farage now is because the MPs are really not on the same page as their voters. So there's a gap between where many voters are and where the Conservative Party is on immigration in the same way as you've suggested there is on, say, free market economics or, or economic liberalism. It's kind of it's like a gulf issue between the, between the parliamentary party, we're here to talk about the conservative side of things, and, right. and the country at large. Would yeah. you say that? Yeah, so the MP surveys, for example, that Tim Bale and UK and EU ran, I mean, they showed the typical Tory MP is quite far to the right of their typical Tory voter on economics and very far to the left on culture. And actually, that's a pattern you see across Europe. There have been studies on this as well. Um, elites who are drawn into politics, even on the right, tend to be liberal on the cultural issues. And, ex- and that offers an opening, really, for those populist politicians that are willing to go into the kind of culturally conservative zone where many party MPs are not willing to go. So do you think this is existential for the Tories? I do think so, yes. I mean, I think that if... I, I mean, I suppose the question is what happens to that third-party zone, right? I mean, if... Farage does come into politics. Now, you do need a charismatic figure, or or it takes a number of cycles. These populist parties can start very small. They have to build up over a number of cycles, like UKIP did, for example. But a well-known figure like Farage or or, or a a Wilders or, or I don't know, a Hyder in Austria can galvanize people quickly. So these populist parties, their, their support jumps up and down very quickly based on their leadership. But, yeah, I think that the Tories, if they don't get a hold of these cultural realignments and realize who their voters are, then yes, they're going to be in the wilderness. Um, Let's take it as a given that this is going to be an existential issue for perhaps both major parties or all parties in the UK, certainly in the future, um, if not in the 2024 um, election. It might be useful to have a bit of a discussion about what could practically be done if a party were to set out to say, okay, we need to do something with this model, we need to reduce economic migration, it's not enough to just emphasise um, the border and the, the, the illegal side of things. We've got a certain system in place, the points-based system that we have at the moment. Um, I'm going to go back to you, Damien, because obviously you've been on the inside of Whitehall, you've held the, the portfolio for this. If you were charged with, you know, the Prime Minister says that we've got to do something about this, it's not going to come down to net zero as it were, but we've got to get it seriously down from 600,000, from 500,000. What what are the challenges and what are the the levers we can start pulling? You've said, you know, legislation is not always the way to go. I mean, first of all, I I disagree with the thought that this is existential. Uh, What's existential is the economy. I mean, as you said, this is the third most important issue. The most important one is the economy. If you get the economy right, then you get a huge amount of, of tolerance about every other policy you do. If you get the economy and the health service right as a Tory government, then you know, you're cooking uh, and, and it's fine. Um, however, uh, to, I mean, to answer your question directly, the, um, I, I agree with Madeleine, actually, that the, the figures having peaked in the past 18 months or so are very likely, even if nothing happens, to come down. You know, there are not... God willing, going to have to be another 200,000 Ukrainians displaced. We have taken in uh, a lot of the Hong Kong people to whom we owe uh, a responsibility uh, in already. So those numbers will, as it were, disappear out of the mm. figures. So I think... It's ne- a compositional thing, then. Next year's net figure will, whatever we do, uh, be less uh, than this year's. Um, and I think uh, yeah, there are things you can do, but... but Quite a lot of what you do on legal migration, you will, in the short term, be damaging the economy. 
and, and you have to accept that trade-off, that if you just say, okay, fine, we are going to grant half the number of visas for work of whatever type next year than this year, then you will find more pubs closing on Mondays uh, or not opening longer hours. Uh, you will find more problems in the care system. Uh, and so both in, if you like, moral terms, in, in the way we're conducting our pu public services, but also just in straightforward economic terms, you will reduce economic activity. Now, in the long term, as I say, absolutely, uh, we should attempt to fill those jobs with some of the three million working age but economically inactive people we've got now. We, we have this weird situation where we have very low unemployment numbers, but still millions of people who could be working who are not working, uh, a lot of whom stopped work during the pandemic uh, and haven't come back. Um, a lot of them have disabilities, including mental health issues, which may well have been exacerbated or indeed caused by the pandemic. So there is... A, a weird, you know, what, what, what used to be called a sort of pool of labour, um, but it's not among the unemployed, the sort of mass unemployment that we saw in the 1980s. It is of people who do not claim to be unemployed, but who nevertheless are not working. And, as I say, in the long term, it will be much better for our society in all sorts of ways if those people worked, uh, if people probably worked longer and, and stopped dreaming of an early retirement and things like that. All of that would be good. But in terms of the next election, if that's the way you're framing the question, then anything pulling a lever now would probably reduce economic activity, might well precipitate a recession, uh, and that, I think, would do more damage to the Conservative Party than taking a risk on the sort of culture wars that, that Eric was talking about. Sure, sure. Um, just before coming to um, Madeline, because I want to get your thoughts on, on the visa regime, I'm just going to bring you in again... Um, Alan, uh, on, on this question of um, on, on, on this question of um, we keep coming back to it, don't we, of, of, of labour force and labour supply. Um, some people say, well, you know, as Damien says, we've got economically inactive people in this country that could possibly be unlocked at either end of the labour market, um, and or um, having an economy reliant on high levels of net migration leans against the sorts of investment in, and innovation in things which might increase labour productivity, which might be less reliant on that. Are, is there any merit in either of those arguments, or, or, or is it unrealistic, or w w what is the picture there? I think, I mean, the statistics, I feel, are, are kind of really quite messed up at the moment. Like, our main labour force survey was really disrupted by the pandemic, and because the ONS is transforming it to a new way of collecting it, I, I, I kind of slightly worry that a lot of conclusions that are based on it may not be entirely reliable. The response rate now is, I think, down to 25% on it. Um, if you look at, say, HMRC data on workforce jobs, employment is clearly well above pre-pandemic levels. I think it supports the view that actually the labour market is generally very, very tight, not that there's a, been a big fall in labour supply. Even if you look at sectors like hospitality, it's very clear if you look at the data, the data there's a big fall in the number of EU workers employed in it. But actually the number of non-EU workers has subsequently risen by more than the fall in EU workers. So hospitality employment is now above pre-pandemic levels. I think you've got to be kind of quite careful about there are narratives out there which I'm not sure always sort of survive 
looking at um, you know what what's actually um, happening. I mean, you know, so I think that um, we've got to be. You know, I think our labour market is very very tight at the moment. That's and it's you know that's why, and we've got a very tight labour market like the US has had. But we've also got the energy price shock that Europe has had, and that's why we've got the worst problem with inflation, basically. And immigration is really very, very little to do with any of that. So um, I'll come over to you now, um, Madam, because we were talking earlier a bit about you know, what, what could be done to make a, to, to, to make a dent in, in this, beyond you know, the idea that it will naturally fall as these kind of compositional effects and circumstantial effects do start to... To, to fall away. If you were given a red pen and you could start sort of um, improving upon, shall we say, uh, as an academic exercise, of course, the, the, the current um, work visa regime, the points-based system, and someone said, you know, this needs to be brought into more of an equilibrium, um, what, what are the levers that you could look to? Yeah, so I should say, I mean, I think ultimately these are all political choices, and I'm actually the ultimate yeah. technocrat. I, you know, I, I have to sit on the fence and all of these things because I actually uh, struggle to, uh, you know, commit to anything on, uh, politically. But um, I, I think, I mean, so the sort of macro point to make is that the, the political challenge here is that um, uh, at the, the people support on the aggregate the idea of lower migration. There's very strong um, support for that in, in opinion polls. Um, but actually, when you look at the individual components of migration, you tend to have higher level. And many of the, of the largest groups that make up overall migration are actually quite popular. Um, and so I think that, actually, that dynamic creates a little bit of an incentive for cakeism, for effectively, for people to talk about the idea of reducing migration, but not actually to introduce policies that would do it. Um, so if you, um, you know, I'm going to sidestep the political issue and say, OK, if your goal is to reduce migration, um, uh, then you know you have to look at all of those components and see what you want to cut. Um, now, obviously, on Ukraine, um, probably it's the case that uh, that that program could remain in, in place, and not many people will come through it in the future. Although you know, it depends on the course of the war in uh, in Ukraine. Um, probably similarly for BNOs, although it's it's difficult to predict. So that effectively leaves you with the, with the next two biggest categories: are work and and study. Now, international students. Um, because most of them go home, they, um, you know, many of them are not contributing in the long run to net migration, but obviously some of them, some of them do, um, and, and will stay in the UK. And the, you know, the government has chosen to take relatively liberal choices on students, allowing people post-study work rights, which doesn't mean that they can stay in the UK forever, but does make it easier for them to then move into the work visa system. Um, so that then leaves you... Um, so I think you know, getting rid of post-study work... Um, it's, actually, it's very difficult to predict whether that would make a big difference in net migration in the long run. I suspect it would make some difference because people would find it harder to get that foothold in the, in, in the labour market. Um, but, but yeah, it's very difficult to say in advance. So then it leaves you with the work visa system um, as the next biggest category. And um, I think you know, the types of levers that, um, uh, that... I mean, there's the skills threshold, the salary threshold. Um, again, and, you know, any increases, the changes that you would make to those will have, will have trade-offs. Um, if you increase the salary threshold, that will, have, uh, that will primarily affect um, the sort of middle-skilled jobs that have become newly eligible for the, um, for the immigration system. Um, but the big uh, question, I think, on, on work visas is, is going to be health and care. And I think care is particularly interesting because it is 
um, I don't like to use the word shortage because I think often it's, it's misused in public debate, but you know, there has really been a shortage of workers in care and there's uh, you know, been fundamental problems in that labor market. It's very easy to get care jobs if people are willing to do them um, because of the difficulties that employers have had recruiting. Um, and so I think there's a really difficult um, uh, political choice to be made about um, you know, if your goal is to reduce skilled work visas, you know, that's one of the biggest single categories at the moment, people coming in um, into, into care jobs. And you know, there's a reason that, um, that they're coming in, and, and it's because, as Alan said, it's because of the poor pay and conditions in, in care that has made it so difficult for, uh, for care employers to recruit people at, effectively at the minimum wage or, or very slightly above. Um, so I think, you know, in all of these cases, it's possible to make more restrictive choices, but, um, but then you have to think about, okay, well, what, how are you going to deal with some of the, the consequences of those? You know, is it possible to fix the, um, uh, the funding problems in, in social care? That's been a very long-standing issue. Some people suggested that the salary threshold is insufficiently high relative to the average wage and or is insufficiently sectorally targeted and you could make it much less of a kind of a, a generalised criterion. Do you think there's merit in either of those arguments or would it be feasible to, to make those changes? The salary thresholds, uh, the one that gets a lot of press is the what's now the 26,200 but um, it is actually sectorally targeted in the sense that there's a, a different salary threshold for each occupation um, yep. within, within the immigration system. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's very difficult to say what the right answer to this. It partly comes back to this question that, you know, Alan raised, well, how, how liberal is your overall policy? A lot of the impacts of these kind of small tweaks are probably not going to be huge. Remember also that we're talking with the skilled work visa system, we're talking maybe 13% of long-term non-EU immigration into the UK last year, so most people are not coming through, uh, through the, the skilled work visa system, and that obviously sort of influences how we think about its impact on, on the labour market. Um, but, yeah, by international comparison, it's, um, it's certainly not a high threshold. There are, there are countries that, uh, that have higher thresholds. There are countries that have lower ones. So I, I think this is really something that a technocrat like me can't give you the answer to, I'm afraid. Um, Eric, what, if anything, can or should be done? Uh, well, well, I think part of this is that, that a lot of the benefits are short-term in terms of sectoral needs, um, and a lot of the costs are longer-term, uh, including, by the way, the aging of immigrants, but particularly pace of cultural change, which is something that is very important to a lot of populist voters. Um, and it is a choice. It's true. And it is true that a lot of voters have a cakeist attitude. I think that shows up on the surveys. Um, uh, and, and, but ultimately, governments do have to make a choice. Now, they've consistently chosen to go the route of, I, I would argue, you know, liberalizing immigration, uh, get, taking those short-term benefits, including to the, uh, the, the health of the Treasury and satisfying uh, various lobby groups instead of trying to address the numbers issue. And, of course, it's the case that economics, the economy is the most important issue almost all the time. That's absolutely true, but it's also very complicated with a lot of moving parts the immigration part of it is an extremely small part. It's not clear to me that would make a great deal of difference. Um, and so it, it comes down to political will and political choices. Uh, and up to now, the Conservative Party, for example, has taken, one, has taken the more business liberal uh, path rather than the culturally conservative path. That's fine. That's a choice. But ultimately, I think their voters are not, or a lot of their voters are not there and the trends are moving in a restrictionist direction insofar as the salience of this issue is rising, which it tends to do when the salience of other issues such as health and the pandemic fall. Um, so going forward, I just don't think electorally uh, for the Conservative Party to pursue that 
sort of business liberal strategy, I'm just not sure that's going to pay off for them. So is, you know, is it a lack of belief that it's something that needs to be done uh, that's an issue for uh, the Conservative Party? Is it just a lack of political will? It's, it, it's too difficult for you know, the sorts of reasons we've, we've, we've been talking about. Um, or is it more you know, uh, to, to do with kind of the deep institutional structure of, um, of, of, you know, of Whitehall, you know, the, the, kind of the, the interests of the Treasury, things like the OBR, obviously migration affects things like the debt-to-GDP ratio mm, and those exactly. kinds of calculations. Right. Right. Which of those do you think, you think it is? Or is it some combination of the three? It is a combination, but I don't think it's the case that the parliamentary party is pushing for restriction and is being resisted by the civil service. I, I, I don't think that's the case. I think there's actually, it, it comes down to priorities and trade-offs, and I just think for a lot of MPs, you know, reducing immigration is a low priority compared to anything economic. And so in that sense, uh, they dovetail quite well, perhaps, with what the opinions are within Treasury. So I, ju I don't think there has been a ton of friction. Um, and you can see that with, I mean, where there is friction is perhaps within uh, number 10 and within the cabinet, but um, certainly I don't, I don't see this as necessarily a, a, a civil service issue. I think it's been that a lot of the intake, a lot of the MPs are coming from a generation or a mindset that is more 1980s Thatcherite, economic liberal, and much less populist national conservative, for example. And I think ultimately it's not sustainable. That will have to resolve itself with the electorate some way. I, I don't, for example, think that culturally liberal, economically liberal, sort of, sort of what we might say uh, country club conservatives who have very liberal-ish uh, attitudes on culture. I don't think that kind of group is large enough, and, and, and I don't think that there are enough people who are culturally liberal that will vote Tory. It, I don't think that is a, a potential strategy for the Conservative Party to win. If they're going to win, they're going to have to reach the red wall. They're going to have to reach that sort of working class, more culturally conservative vote. Uh, and going for the kind of business liberal high immigration strategy won't do that. Just before we go to audience questions, uh, I'm just going to give each of you the opportunity to sort of have a, a last word. And here at the Future of Conservatism Project at Onward, we are looking at the future of our politics beyond the next election. So we're looking to the medium and to the long term and thinking about the really deep currents and deep trends and deep challenges in our politics and in public policy. So um, starting with you, Damien, if there's one thing that you would want to communicate or one thing that perhaps we've overlooked that would be coming down the track for a government that was in power in the 2020s, um, in the, after 2024, I mean, um, what would that be um, in relation to the issue of immigration? What's the big thing that's going to have to be grappled with? And perhaps there might have to be a conversation with the uh, electorate over. Oh, the most important thing of all is productivity. Uh, if we get productivity up, uh, then individual domestic workers become richer and become therefore uh, more uh, able to move around the economy and therefore you probably have uh, less demand for immigration. But much more importantly than that, that's, that's the way to uh, national prosperity um, and, and our failure post-pandemic to bring our productivity back up, largely uh, in the public sector, it should be said, uh, is, is the central issue facing us as well as new things coming down the track like AI. But if I can just cheat and, and, and slightly come back on the point about the, the, you know, the culture, you know, should, should the, the Conservative Party become more populist, um, as long as we have a first-past-the-post political system and therefore as long as 
each of the major parties need to be coalitions, then actually a sort of populist solution would be fatal. And even, even conservative voters who are, if you like, attracted by the populist agenda uh, will at a general election think, OK, I could vote for X party, whatever the sort of far-right party is calling itself at that election. But a lot of them always decide, I'm not going to do that because I don't want to let Labour in. And there, there will come a point, maybe, where that becomes more difficult. But it is absolutely the case that if you go for that section of the electorate, it is not big enough to deliver you a government. So you are condemning yourself to permanent opposition. Populism in a first-past-the-post system does not work. Ask Jeremy Corbyn. Alan. Um, well, first of all, I sort of agree with Damien that the, the central economic problem we have is about low productivity growth. And that's actually got very little to do with immigration. I think sometimes immigration is neither the cause of our problems nor the cure for them, basically. It's just not that. But I think on immigration, what I would say is that I think voters don't like the feeling when it's out of control, that that's quite important. Numbers can be quite high as long as they feel it's sort of controlled. And I think the challenge there will be, um, even though we're not meant to talk about it, will be um, as asylum seekers. And I think the UK has always had less than its, in some sense, its share of asylum seekers within Europe because the channel, I think, was perceived as a barrier. Um, and it's become apparent it's not the barrier that anybody thought it was. And the UK just hasn't come to terms with the fact that it is going to have a higher share of European asylum seekers than it has historically had. The government does not have any kind of a policy to address what is happening um, now. I mean, it has a non-policy at the moment, is my view. Rwanda cannot work, will not work. Um, and, um, you know, they, administratively they've allowed this backlog to write. I've no idea why that anyone allowed that to happen. Um, but that, I think, is the, big, the, the risk for me. Madam. So on um, legal migration, I think I don't foresee any sort of massively new, exciting thing for the 2020s. I think in some ways what's interesting is that the pendulum swings, right? And so and it seems like the historical memory is quite short. And so, you know, we introduce post-study work, we close post-study work, we introduce post-study work. You know, we'll probably do the same thing on, on salary thresholds. And it seems we're sort of um, swinging from one direction to the other. I wonder whether there will ever be a sort of anything like a stable middle road. I suspect probably not. Eric? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess I'll just come back a little on with Damien. I mean, I don't know what you mean by populist. I mean, is reducing immigration to 100,000 populist or not? I mean, I, I guess that's sort of what I'm talking. I'm not talking about zero. I'm not talking about abusing people. But I think if you look at, for example, Brexit voters and, and the, you know, who's, who've defected since 2019 uh, from the Tory party, I mean, that is, that is the group that the Tories need to win back now. Whereas if you take a, you know, Cutting taxes and reducing public services, only 7% of British voters support that position. And so the economic libertarian position is extremely unpopular, whereas reducing immigration is very popular. Now, it, it seems to me, in political marketing, you want to be going to where most of your voters are. Now, it doesn't mean you kind of cut it to zero, but especially when migration numbers aren't going to affect your economics very much. Uh, you know, your headline growth and productivity numbers very much it doesn't seem an especially painful trade-off, in my view, to move in that direction. Again, calmly, if you look at, you know, you look at Europe, 
the populist right parties sort of led on this issue. The center-right parties, like in Sweden, followed to some extent. They didn't go as crazy. But that's sort of what I'm talking about. And again, you know, in New Zealand, in the United States, immigration has been an issue you know, as well. So I just think, I don't know, if, if the idea is that you're going to go not worry about immigration and go towards, or I wouldn't say not worry about it, but go towards numbers like we've been seeing, I just don't think that's workable for the Tory coalition. But I could be wrong. And, you know. Right, we have um, just over 15 minutes for some questions. Um, the uh, team will go around with a mic. Please don't speak till you have the mic. Uh, please say your name, and if you're from an organisation, uh, can you please say it? Uh, I'm going to take a couple of, at a time. And just by way of housekeeping, um, can I please uh, uh, recommend uh, and plead, in fact, that you keep the question uh, thoughtful, respectful, short, and can it please not be... Why won't the government do anything about it? Because we're here to think about <laughs> this question in a more sophisticated way of looking at solutions. Um, right in front of you, Liam. Uh, Robin Hodgson from the House of Lords, where you say you actually uh, restrict immigration at all is like denying the existence of God so sort of 300 years ago, and where we've been struggling with the illegal migration bill for, for four or five or more. It seems to be the, uh, the debate has become unbalanced. It's the two most vocal groups are both in favour. What I might call the moral case, we owe it to people less fortunate than ourselves, and the economic case, running along the lines that uh, Professor Manning's been talking about. What we've forgotten about, of course, is that 60, at least 60 and 70 percent of people in this country think it is overcrowded. And that is a feature in various ways it affects their lives, about the way they, about housing, about declining work wildlife, about a shortage of food and water. It, lack of access to health and education. And therefore, could I suggest that one of the ways for the government to do this would be to try and return the issue on its head and have something like an Office for Population Sustainability, an Office for Democratic Change, which would include what the MAC does, and actually enable the unheard, who have many, many, many concerns about this, a chance to know that their concerns are being discussed, discussed, looked at, analyzed in an open-handed way and that the Office of Demographic Change would report to Parliament every year and there would be a debate and people would know that something was being done. Thank you very much. Um, at the back, sir. Thank you. Uh, Angel Vardieso. Um, so I think it was Warwick in Cambridge that said that after two million jobs were replaced by automation uh, by 2035 or something like that. Um, so I think, obviously, the jobs that are going to be most affected by that are what we call low-skilled jobs. Um, and then sectors like healthcare are going to see increases in demand because of an ageing population. Um, so I'm just wondering, what does that mean for immigration figures? But also, what does that mean for sort of the cultural questions around how we perceive migration in terms of what jobs and sectors will need most jobs in one sector and jobs will suffer the most uh, number of losses. Okay, who would like to take the first of those? Anybody? Anyone, anyone like to speak for or against uh, an OBR for immigration, uh, an independent 
uh, non-party political Whitehall institution or quag or something like that. Eric, what do you think? Well, yeah, I think it's a great idea, actually, um, because ultimately these things need to be planned for. So, for example, if you want to make structural economic changes to make your economy less dependent on short-term uh, migration uh, flows, then you, you probably, you'll have to train more uh, me medical in nurses, for example. You, you're going to have to change maybe the career structure, work on mechanization or, or, or some, I mean, you're going to have to make those economic uh, structural changes in order to allow yourself to wean yourself off that immigration-dependent model, So, which, which I think feeds nicely into what, uh, what Robin was saying, really, about just planning for all these things. I think it makes sense because, in, in a way, these things aren't joined up. Mm. You know, um, the migration side and the economic side, the services planning, I think it could all be usefully integrated. So, yeah, vote in favour. I think um, I guess the, the key challenge is then specifying what the objective is. It's very difficult um, to work out, you know, what is the right amount of population for a country like the UK, um, and you know how how we should use the amount of space we have. I think sometimes population density measures are a little bit simplistic because it's sort of, you know, if we annex to Greenland, our population density would go down, but it wouldn't necessarily affect what it's, <laughs> it's like to live here. Um, so, uh, so a lot of it is more about how you use the space, and there are places that have very high population density um, and places that have much lower population density. Um, and so, but, but I think, you know, so, so you would have to... I don't know that you could necessarily have a sort of, uh, you, you know experts say this is the right population for the UK and this is how you get there. Of course, you can have experts consider the components of you know, specific things like housing or infrastructure or there, you know, given a certain level of population, how would you plan for that? It seems to, appears to me to be a much more manageable task than saying sort of, what is the right population for the UK, which I think will be incredibly difficult. Um, just on the second question, so it was, yours was on measurement, was it? Uh, just want to repeat it very briefly. So what is the impact of automation going to be on certain sectors and how's that going to be received? Maybe that's one for you, um, yeah. Alan. I would say, first of all, believe those numbers even less than you believe people <laughs> talk about the impacts of immigration. Um, I, I think a, a bit over 10 years ago, there was a, there was a study that said 40% of jobs um, were going to be automated within a decade or two. It was very, very influential. People were very worried about it. We're halfway through that decade or two, and we're talking about labour shortages. Um, so I think, although technology always changes the sorts of jobs that people do, and you've got to be able to facilitate, you know, be flexible enough to do that, it doesn't have adverse... You know, it doesn't affect the total amount of work that's done um, at, at all. I think, again, that's one of the things that I think the implications for immigration are not very big you know, one way or the other. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's an important issue, but it's sort of separate from immigration, and immigration hasn't got much to do with it, and that, it hasn't got much to do with immigration. Do you want to add anything to that, David? I mean, economic history bears that out, that actually uh, people are forever worried about automation, uh, and as long as you have a dynamic capitalist system, you will always create uh, new jobs. I mean, the other point I would make is that in the short term, uh, it's quite likely not to be 
what we think of as, as quite low-skilled jobs that will go it will be sort of middle-level jobs that things like AI, for example, uh, will, will be aimed at. You, you will always need um, a care worker to actually physically help someone out of a chair. Um, you can do what you like with technology, but actually you need human beings for certain types of jobs. And so I suspect that it is all slightly up in the air, we're all guessing here, that the, the next generation of massive technological advance uh, will take away a swathe of middle-level jobs rather than jobs at the top or the bottom. And they will be replaced by some other middle-level jobs in industries we've not yet dreamed of. Uh, a couple more. Uh, Alp. Wait, wait the microphone now. Alp Mehmet, Chairman of Migration Watch. Um, what can I say? Such a stellar panel, as they might say on GB News, uh, <laughs> with whom I... I agree almost entirely. A couple of things I don't disagree, I don't agree with. Damien, I remember lots of discussions in your office when you were uh, the first immigration minister under Theresa May in 2010, when you convinced me that it was all possible, that it was going to be possible to bring it down to below 100,000. And indeed, lots of progress made as you've you've pointed to. So my question to you would be, what went wrong? Uh, if, if I might just add to that, with regard to Madeleine, um, can I disagree with her? The only, the, the only point that I really did uh, take issue with was this business that uh, immigration, net migration would fall back to the sort of average levels that we had over the past 13 years. It won't. It can't. It, that's impossible. And I, I'm afraid that whether it happens or not does matter simply because planning now, if the OBR is to be believed and they are assuming net migration of 250,000 or thereabouts soon, all the planning that goes into producing our schools and our hospitals and our doctors and whatever is based on that. That's why it's important that we get it right. And politicians, I'm afraid, if they take, as we are probably doing tonight, how does the Conservative Party win the next general election or do less badly in the next general election? How does Labour counter all that? Everything is short-term. And the problem is that even short-term solutions actually have long-term impact. And that's what the Conservative Party should now be looking at. Um, and, sir, in the red top just there. As brief as possible on a question, please. Yes, uh, I'm Antonino Uviero. I'm uh, in property. Um, I have a policy uh, when reading about the housing crisis or housing if the writer doesn't mention immigration, to disregard in total the entire article. So congratulations on the panel for discombobulating me by talking about nothing but immigration and not mention housing except after the Q&A. Uh, the question is for Eric, who um, played down economic factors, played up cultural factors. Um, with the housing crisis and how that affects household formation, how can you hold to that view, especially in your background in demographics? 
So we have a question on the housing impact on um, housing demand, and then uh, a sort of a what went wrong from uh, from from out, and that things are going to get worse because uh, migration of a certain level is baked into OBR predictions about the future. Any, any views on that? Well, Eric, do you want to start? So if you could, you, well, you're challenged directly yeah, yeah, on challenge, housing, yeah, so why don't you have the Oxford University chat? No, um, but I, I, I just, I really don't see these... I, of course, they are connected in reality. The more immigration you get, more pressure on housing, hard to keep up with that. So I'm agreeing with you in, in reality. But in terms of attitudes, uh, you know, if you take young people, they're the most pro-immigration and they're the most worried about housing. They don't seem to put these two things together at all. Exactly. But, but that's what I'm saying is these two attitude spheres are heavily disconnected. So worry about housing isn't what's driving worry about immigration is what I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying that immigration doesn't affect housing. It does, right? But the, for voters, they're thinking of these realms in largely separate uh, ways, I would say. Now, if you happen to be a restrictionist, then you will say, aha, the reason we've got this problem with housing is because of immigration. But if you are a, a liberal, immigration liberal, you, that won't even factor at all in your, in your view. And that's why I think, so, so the older population, which is less concerned about housing, is more concerned about immigration and vice versa. It doesn't make a lot of sense. You'd have thought if one was driving the other, then we should see these two things correlated much more in the opinion data. So that would be my, my answer to, to you on that. So that doesn't necessarily mean that there's not uh, a causative link in economic reality. Of but, course. But, yeah. but it just means that people perceive it in accordance with their pre-existing... In public opinion, it's, yeah. it's very much inflected by uh, ideological priors, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Any other views on that? Well, well, I, I was going uh, oh, yeah. to ask a direct question to me. What went wrong? Um, well, I mean, as you say, when we came in in 2010, uh, net migration was something like 260,000. Um, and when... I left office, it was, or moved over to be police minister, it was 163,000. So the, the flip answer is I wasn't immigration minister anymore, so uh, not my fault. <laughs> um, the, the, more, the more serious answer was, was a Eurozone crisis, uh, which meant that getting a job as a young person in Spain or Italy became extremely difficult. Uh, and so basically they all tipped up in London uh, to work here, uh, and, and the numbers started going the other way. Um, and then there was a sort of pause during the Brexit debate where, as I think Eric made the very good point, that half the Brexit campaign was, we're going to be Singapore on terms, we're going to be massively economically liberal, aimed at one part of the population, and the other half was Nigel Farage saying, actually, we're going to stop all these foreigners coming here. And, and you could choose which to believe, and enough people believe both that um, you know, they, they won a majority but one or other side of the Brexit argument was always going to be betrayed, um, and it was the, the Farageists who were, who were you know, betrayed because nobody, I think, at, at the heart of, of the Vote Leave movement ever believed that or thought that more uh, economic liberalism would be the, you know, the answer that would sweep away all the issues over immigration. And so... The, uh, the, the promises made in the Brexit campaign were themselves impossible to meet. And, and because of, of contingent things that's happened you know, since the pandemic, like the war in Ukraine uh, and so on, and the aftermath uh, of Hong Kong, means we are now at a, a historically high level. So I'm not sure I agree uh, that it, you know, it can't possibly go back to previous levels. It can go back. Uh, I mean, it may or may not, but I'm absolutely sure it will, it will go back, that this will, this will be a historic high point, net 600,000. 
We've got time for just a couple more. Let's go with Henry and Poppy. Henry, you first. Henry Hill, Deputy Editor of Conservative Home. Is there a case for making businesses, for using the shortage occupation system to make businesses invest more in training? So over the past couple of decades, it seems like businesses have really managed to externalise an awful lot of the cost of training. Universities overproduce graduates, businesses hire the best, the treasury and young workers pay the bill in uh, higher marginal tax rates or the treasury picks up the tab that they pay it off. And then if that's not enough, they can spend a month rummaging around under the back of the sofa and declare that they've done everything they possibly could to try and find higher skilled workers and that they need it to be declared a shortage occupation. So could you not say, okay, if you get a shortage occupation declaration, it'll be for five years or ten years, it'll be tapered, and you have to use that time to invest in a domestic training uh, and skills pipeline so that by the end of that process, you are not reliant on immigrant workers anymore. Thanks very much. And let's go over to the back. Um, it's quite interesting to, and I've been on this panel to see that it's not too fatalistic. I think these discussions do tend to be quite fatalistic, and I think probably understandably so. Um, even if we just look at the example of what Sky Bargain's been coming up against, the, prop- the people who are stopping this campaign, what she said she wants to reduce legal migration, aren't necessarily you know, the blob activists from the outside, but people from the different departments of government. And I think this is part of the problem. I think the idea of kind of unified. Um, you know, migration-focused department does make a lot of sense if there's no PR just for reducing migration. But I think it's also important to make sure that we're keeping in mind that the job of government isn't expectation management, it's to actually get these things done. So it's not a case of saying, like, well, there's nothing that can be done because of this reason, like the Treasury won't allow it, and the Department of Education needs money from the international students. You know, there are still serious consequences that we haven't really touched upon at all tonight that come from mass inward migration, which is to say, you know, integration is almost impossible when it's coming into highly concentrated urban areas. And this is something that Britain has prided itself on for the last couple of years. And I think the Leicester riots last year were a really good example of the sort of thing I think we will be seeing in the next couple of decades, which is to say we will be seeing internal conflict between communities which have just not been integrated because there's been no attempt and really no possibility of doing so. So I think it's important that we, you know, bear in mind this is not like a, a fringe position. This is the moderate position. You know, actually, net zero migration, that, that's not like a crazy, like far away, impossible thing to do. This is something that we should be seriously considering as like the best case option. You know, 100,000 net migration should be seen as something that's actually like pretty out there. Um, so, yeah, I just think it's having a sense of proportion and scale for the long term and not just be thinking purely in short term putting out fires for this kind of issue. Let's answer those backwards. So, first of all, we've got... um, It's not that extreme uh, a position to argue for very low uh, net migration or much lower than it is now, and the current levels may pose problems in terms of social integration because of the scale and the rate. Um, Eric, do you want to come on that, and then we'll go to Henry's question after. Yeah, I would say the thing about migration is it's cumulative. It's happening every year. You know, in the case of the US, they had maybe a million people crossing the border every year for decades. And then you see things like 12 million people illegal, you see the Hispanic population go from maybe 2% up to larger than the African Americans at 17 and and a majority in certain cities like Los Angeles. So this change is cumulative in the... Obviously, if you have ethnic assimilation, then that reduces 
the diversity level. But if that doesn't occur, then it can build up and build up over time and create whole new voting blocks. I think it's rather than interethnic conflict, I think we're more likely to see deeper and deeper polarization in the majority population between the people who like diversity and want more of it and the people who want less of it. And that's, I think, more of what we're seeing. Um, I don't worry as much about the interethnic conflict. Oh, I accept that can happen. But I think this polarization is going to deepen uh, trust and, and some of what Robert Putnam talks about, the kind of hollowing out of social capital and cohesion. I think that's more likely uh, what, we're, what we're going to see. So it's all about thinking long term and the, on the cumulative effects of every year, every year having hundreds and hundreds of thousands. And as a policy wonk, I'd like to finish on a proposal. So Henry's brilliant idea of should we restrict um, uh, shortage occupations to a sort of delineated thing um, which then tapers off and there's an obligation to train. Could there be any mileage in such a scheme? Uh, either of you want to come in on that? Um, I, I, I'm going to say I'm afraid to, I understand where that's coming from. I don't actually think that would, would work for two reasons. I think the shortage, as I said earlier, shortages are actually, everyone says they're about skills. They're much less than about skills than actually um, people are claiming. Um, this is sort of tried a bit in the past. Um, with a sort of sunset clause, you're going on the shortage occupation list, you have a few years to sort yourself out. Of course, you get to those few years, nobody has sorted it out. Well, that's uh, why you have a mandatory thing that you have to do. Yeah, but that, in practice, what that meant was you're going to say to the... I mean, because the NHS was, was the worst offender on this, and the government's the worst offender on this, that you're suddenly not going to have any nurses. And, you know, at that point, that's going to have real consequences uh, for people's lives. I would actually get rid of the shortage occupation list. I think it's, um, you know, the Mac wanted to get rid of it because it only made sense um, when you had a quota on, on numbers as a way of prioritising when that quote you were over that quota. Um, it really shouldn't be called the shortage occupation list. It's sort of jobs that it's now basically jobs that you think employers should be able to bring in migrants, but the sort of general salary threshold of 26,000 is too high to be realistic for them. That's basically what it's for. So calling it the shortage occupation list is not really um, what it, um, is a terrible name. Um, but the government, because from an economic perspective, it's perverse. You think a job is in shortage, and you, um, you respond to that. You think the market should respond by putting upward pressure on wages. The consequence within our migration system is to lower wages. And that was a government decision. That was, the MAC was totally opposed to that. The government, for some reason, thought that was a good idea. I was really hoping that was going to be a eureka moment. But, uh, <laughs> clearly, Sorry, uh, the, com more. the complexity of the issue is, is large and escapes us, and far more than we can nail down in this evening. So many more things for us to be reading and thinking about um, on this very important question. Um, we are out of time, I'm afraid. So um, can I thank all of you for coming along? Um, I usually like to thank my panel speakers at the beginning and at the end, and shamefully I forgot. So can we please give them all an extra loud round of applause for their contributions? Please do continue to look out for more information about the Future of Conservatism event series and our upcoming um, report, uh, which will be launched at some point over the summer. Um, please do um, uh, subscribe to the Onward mailing list to find out all that Onward um, is doing. Uh, this will be um, available after this on YouTube if you have any friends, relatives, loved ones, relations, friends, people who are particularly interested in uh, immigration who might want to go away and... Uh, and, and watch it. But thank you very much for your time and have a wonderful evening.